This is a CBC Podcast. This is Canada Reads, Canada's annual title fight. Hello, I'm Ali Hassan, the host of Canada Reads. Did you know that Canada Reads has been around for 22 years? 2023 is the 22nd edition of the show. And this year's theme is one book to shift your perspective. And which book will succeed in doing that the most? Well, these are the five contenders vying for this year's title. Ducks by Kate Beaton, Greenwood by Michael Christie, Hotline by Dimitri Nasrallah, Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia, and post-apocalyptic novel Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, which is being championed by actor and choreographer Michael Grayeyes. That is the book that we are looking at in this episode. In Station Eleven, a mysterious illness wipes out much of the population, and the few that remain are left to make sense of it all. One group puts together a traveling theater troupe performing Shakespearean plays across the wasteland. I mean, everyone has their own coping mechanisms, right? Here's the trailer. Toronto, a production of King Lear. On stage, the star has a heart attack. A paramedic tries to save his life. An eight-year-old actress sees it all unfold. Meanwhile, the Georgia flu spreads around the world. A pandemic, and with it panic, chaos, and death. 20 years later, the little girl, Kirsten, is fully grown. She's in a troupe of actors and musicians who travel across the Great Lakes. She doesn't remember much from before, but she remembers Arthur, King Lear that night. She still has the comic books he gave her. They hold the key to remember what was lost and to find our way forward. Station Eleven came out in 2014, and it was an instant bestseller. That year, it won the Toronto Book Award and the 2015 Arthur C. Clarke Award. And in 2021, it was adapted into a hit TV series for HBO Max. And now it's a Canada Reads contender. Emily spoke with Sheila Rogers on the next chapter about Station Eleven's success and what it means to have the book on Canada Reads. Here's part of that conversation. Emily, congratulations on the Canada Reads nod. Thank you so much. I'm so happy about it. I'm glad you're happy, and I, I I wish you all the best. I'm wishing all the other authors all the best, too, I want to tell you. <laughs> of <that>. course. <laughs> Since you published Station Eleven, uh, it's been adapted for TV. You've published other novels. You had a child. There was a global pandemic. There's And Station Eleven is on the Canada Reads shortlist. What were your hopes for the novel when you were writing it? You know, it's funny. Um, for context, uh, for all of your listeners, aside from my mom, who might not have been you know, following my career very closely, um, I published three novels before Station Eleven with very small presses in Canada and in the U.S. And what that can mean in practical terms is um, pretty low sales, you know, if we're being blunt here. It, it felt like an incredible honor to get to publish my work. At the same time, I was an administrative assistant through all those novels at a university in New York City. And my expectation was that that would be a permanent condition, that 
that I would just always have a day job and write novels and, you know, publish them and hope more people would read them. When I wrote Station Eleven, I felt like maybe I had a somewhat more commercial premise. And I took the opportunity to sell that novel to bigger publishing houses, um, HarperCollins Canada, and then uh, Knopf in the US and Picador in the UK. So my hopes for the book were that more people would read it than had read my first three books. The life this book has had has been absolutely extraordinary, I have to say. Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, all these years later, there is still this kind of through the looking glass feeling of having stepped out into this kind of upside down world where people have actually read my work, which was uh, not something I ever saw coming, you know, with my first three novels. So yeah, it's just been this really wonderful, surprising, surreal ride with this book, I would say. And it's it's definitely exceeded any expectations I ever had for it. You know, I was thinking about um, speaking to you in 2015 sort of feels like the before times. What, what it does, doesn't it? It does. It really does. What happened to you and this book in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, well, I was in New York City for the duration, which, um, you know, it's not like any of us had a good time in the pandemic. <laughs> the yeah. spring of 2020 was was not fun anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, New York City was pretty dire in those early days. And there was this kind of disorienting feeling that was attached to having written a pandemic novel and then there being an actual pandemic. At the same time, something that became obvious to me in researching the history of pandemics, as I did for Station Eleven, is that there was always going to be another pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that gets a little bit complicated when I'm speaking to you from a place like the United States, because there was an absolute failure of leadership on this side of the border. That was the Trump administration. So, you know, there was always going to be another pandemic. It certainly didn't have to be this bad. You know, a million Americans did not have to die. Um, But at the same time, it was always going to happen because what becomes clear when you research that history is that if you write a story in which, um, you know, in which a pandemic takes down a civilization, that's kind of an exaggeration and a fictionalization of a non-fictional premise. But that is something that has happened to us as a species over, you know, over the centuries. There, There was something a little bit disorienting, though, about seeing you know, not quite at the wiping out civilization level, obviously, but seeing what a pandemic actually looked like. Because it, it turns out it's one thing to travel around the U.S. giving a lecture that contains the line, there will always be another pandemic, hmm. which I was doing for years, you know, certainly around the time I spoke with you. Um, it's something quite different to actually experience that reality. So, yeah, you know, um, I should have been more prepared than I was. But <laughs> I think I was as surprised as, as anybody, and it was a very strange time. Were you like Jivan in in the book? And did you go out and buy, you know, weeks worth of groceries when you found out that there was a pandemic? Yeah, I bought a lot of groceries. I also got really into subscription services for a while where like I had a toilet paper subscription. I had an (laughs) almond milk subscription, like all the things that I could possibly bring in by UPS as opposed to going physically to a grocery store. I did. Um, I remember in those early days, you know, there's um, in New York City, there's a grocery service called Fresh Direct that's been operating for, I think, decades at this point. And I remember how incredibly precious my weekly Fresh Direct delivery slot was. Mm-hmm. You know, it just felt 
so important to not go into a store if I could possibly avoid it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I did become very fixated on groceries in a very Jeevan-like way in those early days. Jeevan is a as a character in Station Eleven, and in in that novel, in this novel that we're talking about, because of Canada Reads, um, you created the Georgia flu, which had a ninety nine percent mortality rate. So much of the world's population is is wiped out. You called this time the collapse. What made you choose that term? Well, what quickly became clear to me. In, in doing what research I could for Station Eleven, because, you know, obviously researching a speculative fiction novel, it ha- has some challenges. Um, what became clear to me is that if people stop going to work, the whole structure of civilization falls apart really, really fast. So I felt like collapse was just kind of, it was an apt term for that. You know, the thing where if gas isn't delivered to the gas stations, you can't fill up your car. If your car breaks down on the highway and nobody can tow it, you know, the highway no longer works. If nobody's maintaining the power plants, the grid goes down, you know, the internet's done in a couple of weeks. Um, mm. Yeah, collapse just kind of felt like like the right word for that. I will say, though, you know, going to um, your comment about the mortality rate of the flu in Station 11, that was something that I just hadn't realized about being in an actual pandemic. One of the things that surprised me about the COVID-19 experience, which is just how low a mortality rate can be while also um, causing incredible societal upheaval Mm -hmm. and and disruption. So yeah, you know, in retrospect, 99.9% may have been a tiny bit excessive. I probably (laughs) probably didn't have to be quite that crazy. Well, you did say it's a speculative fiction novel, but honestly, so strange as I was thinking about it again, I forgot that that's what it was because there there are so many um, things that do resonate with, with what uh, the world has been through over the last almost three years. But um, I think it's it's interesting that one of the characters, and I think it's... It's not the prophet, but the prophet sees it as a moral cleansing. I, I do know that mm-hmm. that character does feel that the collapse is like a moral cleansing. And it's interesting that pandemics and epidemics put social tensions into high relief. Why do you think that is? I think because they're scary is kind of the short, simplistic answer to that. You know, I think that probably when you're in a war, there's a very clear enemy. But when you're in a pandemic, it's like the the enemy is the contagion, but the enemy is also the way people around you are behaving. An experience I had in 2020 when the pandemic was really raging in New York City was experiencing a certain degree of rage toward people who'd pull their masks below their nose. Do you remember that time? Oh, (laughs) yeah. uh, Yeah. And it's like, I was so angry at them for putting other people at risk. So I think it's just the kind of disaster that lends itself to that. Um, I also, and this is a little bit heartbreaking to me, I do think of the COVID-19 pandemic as something of a test that we failed, you know, certainly on this side of the border. I can't speak um, as much the Canadian experience, but I, I feel like in the U.S. we proved as a nation that we're unable to tolerate really even inconvenience, you know, for the sake of saving lives. Um and, you know, that was certainly how I felt about the anti-maskers and the anti-vaxxers during during the periods in 2020 and 2021 when when that was really, really important, you know, when it actually was raging. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah. You know, there's, there's a degree of heartbreak in the wake of that. And I've certainly heard that from other people down here that it does expose these real tensions and fault lines in society. And, and that can feel pretty dark. Several of the main characters in Station Eleven are actors. There's the famous Arthur Leander who dies of a heart attack during a performance of King Lear. That happens very early in the story. The, uh, the audience doesn't know if it's art or, or if it's real. And there's also eight, the eight-year-old actor um, acting with him named Kirsten, and she survives and is picked up by a company performing music and Shakespeare. The company is called the Traveling Symphony, and it roams towns and settlements around the Great Lakes area after the pandemic. Just to, to begin, wh- why did you want to put actors at the center of this story? Um, I've known a lot of actors over the years, you know, just, I've been in New York city for a really long time, um, about 20 years now. And I've just come into contact over the years with a lot of actors in the way, way, way off Broadway world. Mm-hmm. And, and in that world, it really is about your love for your art and for your desire to tell a story. You know, it's, it's certainly not about money in that kind of segment of the theater world. So you know, the actors I've met over the years who are in that segment, it's like nobody's just an actor. You're an actor slash waitress slash SAT tutor, you know, like whatever it takes to keep on doing your art. And I guess that kind of it reminded me a bit of the dancers who I knew in Toronto. You know, I, I trained at the School of Toronto Dance Theatre and was in the contemporary dance world there for a little while. That same kind of heartfelt dedication and the same kind of sense of community that sort of rises up around that. That was something that was moving to me, and I wanted to write about it. Um, it's it's kind of funny in retrospect because Station Eleven is, you know, it's obviously marketed and thought of as this kind of pandemic novel. Mm. In the first few drafts, I didn't realize there was going to be a pandemic. I thought I thought I was going to set it completely in the present day, just about the lives of actors. Mm. And um, yeah, my original idea for the book was that it was just going to be about what it means to devote your life to your art the costs and the joys of that. And then the pandemic element came along later. So yeah, that was my original interest. And I guess it's just a population I admire and who I wanted to write about. And what is it about Shakespeare? Why why are they performing Shakespeare? And why do people who go to see them love seeing Shakespeare? You know, it's funny. Like I feel like a novel is a time capsule in the sense that the novel I wrote in 2011 to 2013, that's when I wrote Station Eleven. I don't know that it's the same novel I'd write now, hmm. where at this point in my life, I'm not sure if it would be, you know, a strictly Shakespearean theater company. But I can tell you what I was thinking at the time, which is, um, you know, in the first few drafts of the novel, I had them performing plays from a whole range of eras. So it was Shakespeare. It was also 20th century playwrights like David Mamet and a couple of others. Um, and then I also had them performing teleplays. They were performing episodes of Seinfeld and How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> and I just couldn't quite make it work. There was um, there was just something a little bit incongruous to me about people in this post-apocalyptic, post-technological, post-electric world. Um, just being, you know, riveted by comedies about the New York City real estate market, which, hmm. you know, I, I love Seinfeld as much as the next person, but it just seemed like just a little bit out of keeping with this world I was trying to create. So my thinking at the time was maybe theater from an earlier era makes more sense, you know, in this world where the age of electricity has come and gone and we're back in the age of candlelight. 
I also, you know, as I thought more about what that repertoire was going to be, I, I did some more reading about Shakespeare's life and uh, the world he lived in. And there's some kind of interesting parallels there that I just kind of liked, you know, um, the pro probably the most obvious one is just that in Elizabethan England, theater was so often a matter of small traveling companies setting out on the road, moving from town to town. And that was very connected to plague. You know, the plague would sweep through London, the theaters would close, the actors would, you know, go off on the road. Um, so yeah, it was just interesting to think of the parallels there, this world where theater was kind of a traveling endeavor and where probably all of the audiences, you know, in all of those stops, you know, in Shakespeare's time, I think they would have been a little haunted in the same way that they are in Station Eleven, where, you know, Shakespeare's world was one where the plague swept across the country over and over and over again. What is the motto? I know the answer to this question, but the Traveling Symphony's motto it is, uh, I borrowed it from Star Trek, and it's um, <laughs> survival is insufficient. Can, what did, where did you poach it from, from Star Trek? Uh, episode 122 of Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for being so precise. <laughs> I know the answer to this. Yeah, yeah. Written by uh, Ronald T. Moore. It aired in September. Oh, now I'm going to ruin my streak here. I want to say 1999. I might be wrong about that. Um, yeah, you know. It's funny how memory works, isn't it? You just, you can't predict what random line of television will stay in your brain forever. And I, um, yeah, I heard that line. I think it, it might be seven of nine says the word survival is insufficient. Mm -hmm. And it just, it just stayed with me. It, it just seemed to me as a 19 or 20 year old when I first saw that episode, and it seems to be now as an elegant and concise expression of something that I believe to be true which is that, of course, survival is never enough for us. And that's that's why we have things like music and sports mm -hmm. and Canada Reads, you know, these, um, these things that just remind us that there's more to our days than just getting through the day. And not to take for granted what we have. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Kirsten is a girl when the pandemic hits. And later on, she says, the more you remember about pre-collapse life the more you know you've lost. Who fares better, the people who remember the before or those who don't? You know, in the book, it's really, in the book, it's really those who don't. And that was something really interesting for me to think about because on the one hand, it's hard to overvalue memory. You know, you need to know what happened in your life and in your community and in your country and in the world. Um, history is really, really important. What I found myself thinking about is that if there were some kind of terrible collapse, it's the people who didn't remember the way the world used to be who might find it the easiest. And, you know, I saw that in some micro level, I have to say, um, in 2020, 2021, um, where, you know, my, my daughter, my daughter had just turned four when the pandemic hit which meant that about a year in, she didn't really have very clear memories of what the world was like before the pandemic. So she didn't know what she was missing, which was a little bit heartbreaking. But at the same time, I think it was much easier to have a four and five-year-old than it was to have, say, an eight, nine, 10, 11-year-old in that era. You know, there was just less of a sense of a lost world. So yeah, I found myself thinking about that a lot with Station Eleven. That on the one hand, what an extraordinary thing to remember the previous world and 
to therefore get to live in more than one world over the course of one's life. But at the same time, what a burden that would be if you were living in the Station Eleven world, which is post-technological, to have to remember a time when, say, you could easily get antibiotics or you know insulin or all these other things that we depend on. Because the the Georgia flu was so highly contagious, the the characters lose their world all of a sudden in one fell swoop. But worlds are worlds are being lost all the time uh, in less dramatic ways. What did you want to say about how we deal with with this loss? Um, what I wanted to suggest is kind of what you what you just suggested, which is that the world keeps changing, and. You know, that's something that I get into a little bit more deeply in Sea of Tranquility, my, my more recent novel. But I think it is present in Station Eleven, too, where, you know, without without giving away too much, it is a profoundly hopeful book. Or that was how I meant it, because although characters do pass through this really dire era, the era changes into another era. And there's a suggestion of another era that's going to happen after that. So... Yeah, I think there was something in there I wanted to suggest about the constancy of change. Mm. And Emily, when all is is said and done and the world we know is changing and, and that change is out of our control, what is it that we really can't do without? Um, community. Mm. I think that's really important. Um, yeah, you need other people. That That's something... But I have to say, I think the TV adaptation, which I wasn't really involved with, um, I, I got to see it when it was complete, which was kind of amazing. But I think that's something that they did really, really well. It's just highlighting this idea that you need other people. Um, you know, there's this incredible line, I think in the final episode where a character says something like, you know what, having one other person, just one other person can make all the difference. And I think about that a lot. I think, um, I think you can't really get through this life alone. Mm. Emily, earlier you said um, you you chose actors because of the love they had for their art and desire to tell a story. Absolutely something you share with actors. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you about Station Eleven again. Well, thank you. This has been lovely. That was Station Eleven author Emily St. John Mandel in conversation with Sheila Rogers on the next chapter. Championing this novel on Canada Reads is a veteran actor, dancer, and director who's been performing for over 30 years. What I'm about to say is completely off the record. But I want you to hear it. For someone who claims to give a voice to the voiceless, you have a real problem listening. The live breathing ones. They're coming across in almost the same numbers. Some people in Red Crow don't like it. But we've got to do right by survivors. Championing Station Eleven is Michael Greyeyes. Michael Greyeyes is an actor, choreographer, and director from Muskeg Lake Cree Nation. He battled zombie hordes as trailer in Blood Quantum, a role that won him the Canadian Screen Award for Best Actor in 2021. He also starred as Terry Thomas in the Peacock television series Rutherford Falls. Michael Grayeye spoke to Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud on commotion about Canada Reads and why he chose to champion Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mendel. 
listen, I gotta say, I have to start with this because I know and I get it. We're gonna talk about Station Eleven in a minute, but I am like a super fan of Yellowstone. I have a Yellowstone problem in my house. You play Hank <laughs> in the show 1923, which is a spinoff of uh, of Yellowstone. Uh, that's yeah. the spinoff starring Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren. Please tell me just literally anything. Give me one step closer to the glow of Yellowstone. What's it like working on the show? Oh my gosh, it's so fantastic. Um, of course, Yellowstone is a mega hit, as you already know. Yes. And so I found out that um, you know they were doing 1923 uh, in October last year, and I sent in a, an audition, and um, you know I found out very quickly that you know I got the part, so I was super excited. Uh, when we went to film it in Montana, it was cold, and you know I'm Canadian, <laughs> so I can you know this is cold, cold. Yes. Uh, but we had an incredible time. And I will say that the production um, uh, level of, of, of these shows is extraordinary. Uh, when I was filming my scenes with Amina, who plays Tiana Rainwater, um, in one scene, they had five cameras rolling. Wow. Five cameras. I've, I've been on many feature films. And like on some days, we'd have maybe three. And there was a special day. <laughs> It'd be like three cameras. Right. They had five cameras rolling every day. It's a mega project. It's really incredible. Man, I love Yellowstone. Thank you for sharing this fun tidbit with me. And now we're gonna we're gonna pivot to your specialty because you're a big fan of science fiction and dystopian books. Uh, Michael, I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is hard enough. Like, why? Why is that what you want to read? You know, I've I've been drawn to it since I was young. A classmate, a, an older student at my school was talking about this book he was reading called 1984. And I was like, oh, I, oh my God, it sounds so good. I want to read it. And so, um, you know, I read it. I didn't understand half of it at the time, mm. uh, but I kept returning to it. And it just, it just opened up this world because in a way, dystopian uh, fiction is really all about the world we live in, but they tweak it. You know, it's like, it's like a, it's like a DJ. It says like, what if we just add a little more bass <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the dystopian world, it reminds us in our own world and in our own time, um, how how a subtle shift can put us someplace really often terrifying or unsettling in some way. There, there's a lot of Canadian books that are dystopian, and I'm glad that you mentioned what dystopian novels do. Why did you choose Station Eleven for Canada Reads this year? Uh, you know, I came to Station Eleven... Um, as, as, a, as a book reader, I came to it um, sort of in a in a sacrilegious way. I came to it through the miniseries. I stumbled upon the miniseries. I was like, oh, I've heard, you know what? I've heard a lot about this show. And so I watched the show and I was just bowled over, a gobsmack. Yeah. And I had to post about it on my Instagram feed. And some of my students, uh, former students from York, they were like, I love the show, but you've got to read the book. Mm -hmm. And so then when um, Canada reads, uh, you know, I entered the conversation about being on the show this year, they were like, well, what, what books are you looking at? And I talked to them about my love of sci-fi and, and they suggested Station Eleven. They were like, well, what about Station Eleven? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes. And of course, I just freaked out because it was so magnificent. And now you have to go and represent this book to the nation. Michael, are you a competitive person? Uh, I am. I'm. I'm stealth competitive. Like I don't. I don't. Ooh, you know. What does that mean? Um, it, what it means is, um, 
I'm ambitious and 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 competitive, but in a quiet way, in a quiet mm. way. So it's sort of like, you know, I won't go, I'm gonna knock him out in the first round, you know, <laughs> but I will I will go chest to chest, you know, and kind of be the quiet one, thinking in my head, I'm gonna knock him out in the first round. I uh, but I don't say it. I, I love that. It. That's those are the people you got to worry about. I love that you're like <laughs> you're declaring yourself to be the danger in the group. Uh, listen, you're a wonderful actor. We have asked you to prepare a short reading from Station Eleven. Can you can you set it up for us a little bit? Okay. Um, you know, when I first started reading the book, I was just like, okay, so this is so fascinating, and I was I was kind of in a forensic place, you know, like like knowing what the series was and 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 seeing how how it emerged from the novel. And then I got to um, chapter six and it's called an incomplete list. And it did something that the series just couldn't do. Mm. It, it talked about all the things that turned off, you know, things that just the batteries just died. Things just shut down slowly. And it was so beautiful and elegiac. Oh. Um, but I want to read you just uh, a short passage from it. Please do. Thank you. <clears throat> an incomplete list. No more diving into pools of chlorinated water lit green from below. No more ball games played out under floodlights. No more porch lights with moths fluttering on summer nights. No more trains running under the surface of cities on the dazzling power of the electric third rail. No more cities. No more films, except rarely, except with a generator drowning out half the dialogue, and only then for the first little while, until the fuel for the generators ran out, because automobile gas goes stale after two or three years. Aviation gas lasts longer, but it was difficult to come by. No more pharmaceuticals. No more certainty of surviving a scratch on one's hand a cut on a finger while chopping vegetables for dinner, a dog bite. Oh, man. Okay, well, now I'm kind of brought back right back to the book and the intensity of the book. But also, if there was like a radio drama equivalent of the Canadian Screen Awards, I would give you that just for that reading. Thank you so much, Michael. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I love this book so much. That was Michael Grayeyes talking to Elamine Abdul Mahmoud on commotion about his Canada Reads selection, Station Eleven, by Emily St. John Mandel. Michael is one of five panelists on Canada Reads. You can learn more about all of them in other podcast episodes. But before we wrap this episode, let's hear from Michael one more time. Here's his one minute pitch for Station Eleven. Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel is a sprawling work of imagination set against a backdrop of a world ravaged by a pandemic. And like all great science fiction, it imagines a future in which we can look back on our lives today, like in this moment. The novel's incredible strength is that it asks us, what do we value? What do we need to take with us? What can we leave behind? Emily St. John Mandel's writing is so beautiful. It's haunting, it's imaginative, and this is a book that all Canadians need to read. 
because it asks us about what we value today. That was Michael Grayeyes laying out why Station Eleven is the one book all of Canada should read. Michael and Station Eleven are one of the five contenders on Canada Reads this year. Canada Reads takes place March 27th to the 30th. And you can find out more about this year's contenders at cbcbooks.ca. I'm Ali Hassan. This is the Canada Reads pre-show podcast. Until next time, read on Canada. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.